Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by evolutionary biologist Michael Ryan of the University of Texas at Austin, Sexual Selection and the Brain, an Origin of Evolutionary Aesthetics, as part of the 2011 Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. This is a series on the relationship between evolutionary theory, evolutionary biology, and human aesthetics. And some of what I've done is written broadly about the relationship between neural and cognitive and sensory biases and the evolution of what we would call beautiful and elaborate and extreme traits in animals. <clears throat> and then when I thought about giving this talk, I had a choice between doing a very general survey of this idea of the evolution of attractive traits in animals, or on the other hand, talk in a little bit of detail about this one particular system that I concentrate on, the Tungra frogs. And since I'm a real devotee of natural history, I thought it might be instructive to go through a narrative of our studies of the Tungra frogs, not, because, not only because I feel it, it illustrates this relationship between sensory and cognitive and neural biology on the one hand and the evolution of what Darwin referred to as aesthetic preferences in animals. But I also thought, since this is a general audience, it might just be informative to give a narrative about how in this kind of biology, this interface between evolutionary theory and natural history, we approach the, the question, how we approach the questions, how we propose the questions, and how we actually design experiments to answer some of these questions. So I want the subtext of this talk to be a little bit about the scientific approach in this particular field of evolutionary ecology. So we see, uh, we as humans, we see beauty all around us, and there's no question that Beauty is in the eyes, or in the nares, or in the ears of the beholder. So the, I know there's a real philosophical issue. To what degree does beauty reside in the objects that we're admiring versus in how we perceive those objects? But certainly what Darwin tried to under, one of the many things that Darwin tried to understand is that how preferences for beauty came about in animals. So Darwin was accepting the fact that in many animals, there was extreme beauty. And what Darwin was, was interested in, how did this beauty come about? And he was suggesting, as we'll get to in a second, that the animals themselves were generating selection that promoted the evolution of what he at least considered and what most of us would consider beautiful traits. Now, this isn't what Darwin's famous for. Darwin is most famous for proposing his theory of natural selection. And natural selection is a theory by which animals can evolve adaptations for survivorship. And Darwin was very specific about meaning adaptations for survivorship. And the classical example um, of Darwinian natural selection theory are the, are the Galapagos finches. And we know, we know that there's amazing variety in the beaks of Darwin's finch and that this morphological variation is very well tied into ecological spe specialization. Animals with different kinds of beaks specialize on different, on different food items, and this ecological and morphological diversity then eventually promoted the evolution of, Darwin, of, uh, of finches on the Galapagos Islands. 
Now, Darwin was faced with another kind of variation. He talked about this variation in the origin of species. And that is the variation amongst animals in traits that seem to have no function in survivorship. And as Darwin suggested, we're probably maladaptive for survivorship. And Darwin suggested, Darwin used the peacock's tail as his iconic example for the evolution of elaborate traits that appear to counter his hypothesis of natural selection. And Darwin was very clear in stating that the evolution of these elaborate, these, this class of elaborate characters could not be explained by his theory of natural selection. And he proposed a different theory. And he outlined this theory in The Origin. And then he wrote a book in 1872, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, where he, he supported it with great natural history detail this idea of sexual selection. And just to read his quote, Darn said that sexual selection doesn't depend on the struggle for the existence in relation to survivorship, but instead depends on the struggle of his existence between individuals of one sex, usually the males, for possession of the other sex. So sexual selection favors attributes in individuals that doesn't necessarily promote their survivorship, but promotes their ability to obtain mates. And some of these traits will run counter to survivorship. Some of them will be coincident with survivorship, but many of them actually are opposed by natural selection. Now, when Darwin made his argument for natural selection, he relied very heavily on what was known about artificial selection and artificial breeding, especially in England. And Darwin was very interested in pigeons, and he drew upon the literature on artificial breeding of pigeons. So by concentrating on artificial selection in animal breeds that people had experience with, Darwin was able to make the strong argument that selection imposed, in this case, by the artificial breeder can very quickly lead to the evolution of different morphologies and different behaviors. And Darwin pointed out that some artificial selection appeared to be very utilitarian. We could select for cows, for instance, to increase milk yield. But Darwin also pointed out that both in plants and in animals, artificial selectors were selecting for what were aesthetic traits, traits that were attractive to the artificial breeder. And this, in fact, was the target of selection of artificial breeders. Artificial breeders would breed for particular forms in flowers, particular forms in animals, because they were pleasing to the human population. They were pleasing to us. Darwin then later contrasted that with the evolution of what he considered attractive traits in animals. So what we see here is uh, a male and a female fairy wren, a male and a female pheasant, a male and a female guppy, a male and a female extinct um, um, Irish elk, male and a female swordtail, lion, and some butterflies. So what Darwin pointed out is that when he, when he surveyed the animal kingdom, he found again and again examples where there's great differences between the sexes. And he referred to the, the traits that characterize the sexes as sexually dimorphic characters. So this would be a case where there's sexual dichromatism. The male birds 
and the male bird in this case is much brighter than the female. If he were to examine his song, he would find that the songs of the male would be much more complicated than the females. So when Darwin surveyed the animal kingdom, he came across example after example after example where there were these elaborate traits. And Darwin said there's some generalization, generalizations about these traits. First of all, Usually, and certainly not in all cases, there's many ex exceptions, but usually they're more developed, more elaborate in the males than in the females. Usually these traits appeared to have something to do with courtship. And quite often these traits were only, were only presented during the breeding season. So Darwin suggested that Females had a very strong input, and we'll talk about why female choice should be important, but that instead of an artificial breeder selecting on these elaborate characters in domestic populations, that the female of the species was generating selection on males, where the females were actually promoting the evolution of these traits that were maladaptive in the context of natural selection, but that were also much more elaborate. And as Darwin, and Darwin pointed out, females seem to share some aesthetic preferences with humans. And what he meant by that is in many cases, the kinds of traits that were favored under artificial selection seem to be similar to the kinds of traits that evolved under this new theory, this new idea of sexual selection. And Darwin also pointed, and Darwin used the term aesthetic preferences because Darwin did not really propose an explanation as to why females should evolve these preferences. But what he did suggest is that there seemed to be some generalities in the kinds of traits that females found attractive throughout the animal kingdom. And what he pointed out here is, you know, is one example that when males produce sounds that are attractive to females, that are favored by females when they're choosing mates, let's say in a songbird based on song, that the males, of course, are going to make the kinds of sounds that are pleasing to the ears, and I would rephrase that as pleasing to the sensory biology, the neurobiology, and the cognitive biology of the receiver, in this case, the female, and that it's not surprising that similar animals, because they have similar sensory systems, are going to share these similar aesthetic preferences. Now, what, I'm, what I don't want to do is try to make a tie between aesthetic preferences in humans and, and these preferences for extreme traits in animals. But what I am going to suggest is that in many cases, it seems that the way, the form in which these male traits evolve is determined by the internal biology, by sensory biases and neural biases and cognitive biases in the receiver. And this can, can explain an awful lot about the evolution of these, um, of, of these attractive traits. Now, why is it that in most cases, males seem to be competing for females, that males are less likely to mate and females are much more likely to mate. And in many systems, females seem to be able to choose the male with whom they want to mate. Now, unlike his theory of natural selection, when Darwin proposed his theory of sexual selection, most of his colleagues, including Huxley, including Wallace, totally rejected this idea of sexual selection by female choice. And some historians of science, such as Helena Cronin, and, and some biologists, such as Mary Jane Wes Eberhardt, has suggested that 
science in the Victorian age in England wasn't ready to assign to females the powerful selective force that they could actually influence the evolution of these male traits. Well, Trivers wrote an, an influential paper in 1972, which he referred to as his parental investment theory. And Trivers made a very simple point. He said, male, male gametes are small and female gametes are large. This is how you define male versus female. For biologists, none of the other traits are defining characteristics. The only defining trait to tell the difference between a male and a female is the size of the gametes. Size and gametes in almost all sexually re reproducing animals are bimodally distributed. There's large ones and there's small ones. There's not a continuous distribution of gamete size. So Trivers said that females put much greater investment in their gametes than males put in their gametes. A result of this is that females are limited in the number of times that they can breed. And he suggested that there was a real premium on females to choose males very carefully to be sure that they're mating with appropriate mates, perhaps genetically superior mates or healthier mates. And therefore, you, there should be very strong selection for females to choose males. Males, on the other hand, in many species can make continuously throughout the reproductive season. And Trivers said there should be selection on males to mate more indiscriminately, but to mate often. And he suggested this in 1972, but the data that, that convinced Trivers of this, and Trivers points, has pointed out that it was Ernst Meyer, the famous evolutionary biologist at Harvard, who alerted Trivers to this paper that was published by Bateman in 1948. Bateman did a very simple exper experiment. He took, female, he took fruit flies. He mated fruit flies zero, one, two, three, or four times. That's a, the number of times they mated is along the x-axis. The uh, number of progeny they had is along the y-axis. What he showed, not surprisingly, is for both for males and the females, if they don't mate, they have no offspring. For the females, once they mate, they have a certain number of offspring, and the females are the closed circles here, and increasing the number of times they mate in this species doesn't have a drastic effect on the number of offspring they produce. Number of males, however, in Bateman's data set, the male's reproductive success, the number of progeny, increases linearly with the number of females that he mates with. So this, this doesn't support Trivers' idea. This was the seed for Trivers' idea, is that males should be under selection to mate often, whereas females should be under selection to mate carefully. Now, there's exceptions to this. And the exceptions are where we have our explanatory. It's this, where we have females making more paternal investment than they would in many other species. So this is a pipefish. A pipefish is in the same family as seahorses. Seahorses are interesting because males become pregnant. The females implant an unfertilized egg into the pouch of the pipefish or the seahorse, and it's inside, it's inside this pouch that fertilization takes place, and males then nurture the eggs until they hatch out as little pipefish. So once a male mates, He's not able to mate for a long time until, he, until he's able to, to give birth to the fertilized eggs in his pouch. So here, if you plot 
reproductive success of females, you see that the reproductive success of females tends to increase with the number of mates because once she deposits the egg in one male, she can then go on and deposit another egg in another male, and the male's reproductive success tends to increase very little with, um, with more matings. Now, again, there's many, there's many exceptions to Bateman's rule, and there's also some, a lot of statistical problems with Bateman's analysis, but there's also been a number of studies that support Bateman's rule, and that is that males tend to mate oft, more often than females, and also that the variance in male mating success is much higher than the variance in female mating success. In most sexually reproducing organs, sexually mature females do get to mate. In many sexually reproducing organisms, a majority of males die before they ever have sex. So what I want to do is I want to talk about this one particular system of sexual selection. And I want to talk about not only the evolution and function of these sexual displays in this Tungra frog, but I also want to give you a taste as to one how, how one approaches these kinds of questions um, in evolutionary biology. What are the questions we ask, but then more importantly, once we ask the questions, how do we actually go about answering and testing these hypotheses? Okay, so this is the Tungra frog. This is, I always forget to point out that this is a small animal. It's only 30 millimeters in length. It's distributed throughout Middle America. The northern part of its range is just north of Veracruz, Mexico. It comes all the way down through Middle America, through the Darien jungle, into northern and western South America. And we've studied these frogs throughout their entire range. We've done transects from northern Mexico, 5,000 kilometers down into Venezuela. And we know that in terms of the sexual display, and in terms of how, when we've tested how the females respond to these sexual displays, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of variation within the species. There's other closely related species that we've studied in South America where there's a lot of variation amongst populations, but that's a different story. Right here, this is Barrow, Colorado Island, which is in the middle of the Panama Canal Zone. And this is a wildlife refuge that's um, part of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. And I've been a research associate there for the last 25 or so years since I've been studying these animals. And I always want to acknowledge all the logistical uh, support that STRI has given to me over the years. Okay, so, these, so there's about 6,000 species of frogs. Almost all frogs call. And all frogs that call have a species-specific species mating call. So what I mean by species-specific is that not that there's no variation in the call of a species, but all the males of a species sound about the same, and importantly, they sound quite different from other species. These frogs gather in choruses that are sometimes referred to as leks. Males come to these places at night. And they spend the night calling for females. Males can make up to 8,000 calls a night. We've measured the metabolic cost, how much energy it takes to, cost, to call, and the male's metabolic rate is elevated by 250% while they're calling. So they're using a lot of energy. 
We know that when they call, their testosterone levels are very high. We know that they don't eat during the breeding season, so they lose weight. When they lose weight, we know that their stress hormones go through the ceiling, and this causes their testosterone to crash. So then they have to take a break from the mating game for about a week, then they eat and they come back. So we know a lot about the reproductive biology and reproductive physiology of these guys. But what we're especially interested, though, is in their mate choice behavior. So what the males are doing at this site is they're not, and this is important, they're not defending a resource for the females. This is why this is called a lek mating system. The males come to these communal display grounds and they call. The females enter the display grounds and they assess the males. They sit in front of one male, listen for a while, sit in front of another male, listen for a while, and they're unimpeded by the males. The males are not patrolling trying to just find females to mate with. The males pretty much stay still until the females mate with them. So here's a female approaching a male. Female will sit at a distance, and then at some point, if the female makes a decision, and it is a decision, and we know how they're making this decision in their brain, I'll mention this later, the female comes within a certain distance. When she decides she wants to mate with that male, she swims straight into the male. The male then clasps her from the top, and that's called amplexus. So he's like hugging her from the back. They don't have an intermittent organ, not like those ducks of yours. And the male, it's hard, didn't mean to embarrass you, but that's a hell of a penis those guys have. But the, uh, the male hangs on to the female, and then the female will extrude eggs from her cloaca, and in most frogs, the male just drops the sperm out of his cloaca. They mix in the water, they become fertilized. These guys are a little bit more complex. They make a nest. This is a foam nest. So what's happening here is the female's on the bottom, male's on the top. She extrudes a few eggs. He catches the eggs with his hind legs. I can't demonstrate this. And then he brings his hind legs past his cloaca, and that's the point that we think the sperm reaches the eggs and fertilize. Then the male takes his hind legs and he beats it into a jelly matrix. When he beats it into a matrix, then this foam starts, uh, starts to form. And this foam has some chemicals in it that were just discovered a couple of years ago that seem to be mosquito repellents or maybe more general insect repellents. And then the male fertilizes the eggs. Here, here's an egg. There's 200 or 250 eggs. It takes them about an hour to construct this nest. The metabolic rate of the male especially is very high during nest construction. And then if one assays the muscles in the male's leg, what you find is that they're packed with lactate. So the males generated a lot of lactic acid during this. And the females uh, don't have any evidence of uh, increased lactic acid in any of their muscles. And then they leave the nest. There's no maternal care. There's no paternal care. And this is what makes it a lek mating system. The females go there. They choose males. They mate with the males. And then there's no further um, no further resources from the male. When you, when you go back in the morning, the frogs are breeding at night. They breed from about 7 p.m. in Panama, from about 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. Then you go back in the morning. It's kind of like going back to a field where there was a fraternity party, except you're <laughs> seeing empty beer cans. You're seeing these nests of the tungra frogs um, scattered about. Okay, so there's, strong, there's very strong selection on males 
to attract females. And females really are in a situation where they have a choice of whatever males they want to mate with. So what I'm showing here, this is I monitored the reproductive success and marked all the animals, males and females, during a complete breeding season in Panama. I marked about 700-something males and about 600-something females who came to the pond. This shows the number of males and the number of females as a function of date. And if we combine these two curves, we get a good idea of what we refer to as the operational sex ratio. How many males and females are at the pond to mate? And the only thing that we have to see here is that the, the red bars are also always substantially higher than the blue bars. There's always many, many more males trying to mate on that evening than there are females that are able to mate. And the reason is simple. In the population, the sex ratio appears to be about one to one. But once a female mates, once she produces a nest, it takes her six weeks to, to yoke up another batch of eggs. So she's out of the mating game for about six weeks, and males can stay for several weeks uh, in the breeding population, then they do need to take a little break and gain some weight before they come back. So this really fits uh, Trivers and also Bateman's prediction that there should be very strong selection on males to mate with any uh, any female that's willing to mate with them, whereas females have a chance to be uh, to be more choosy. More choosy based on what? On the advertisement call. We know that the acoustic signal, the advertisement call, is the most important part of the male's sexual display. It's not the only part. It's by far the most important part. We've known for half a century that females can tell the difference between conspecific males, males of their own species, and males of different species by listening to the call. We've known for 30 years from research that was begun at MIT, continued at Bell Labs, and then um, really reached its heyday at Cornell, we know basically how the frog's brain makes these decisions. Or to put it more succinctly, we know what the frog's ear tells the frog's brain. And now we know even more about how the frog's brain makes these kinds of mating decisions. Now, when males gather to call, they vocally compete with one another. So the, the call, this is, a, this is a call that's a little bit unusual for a frog in how complex it is. It's not complex when compared to a bird's song, but it's fairly complex for a frog song. And this is why. There's two components. The first component is always present. This is called the whine. So what we see here are two pictures of the same call. The waveform shows how the amplitude of the sound changes with time. The spectrogram shows how the frequency changes with time. So the whine sounds like this. It starts loud and gets soft, and it's high in frequency and then goes low in frequency. All the other close related species to Physolimus, we've studied about 30 of them. All the rest of them are throughout South America. They all have a mating call that's derivative of this wine. It might be very short. It might be very long. And I, I want to point out for the biologists that the species with the longest call, which is the whiniest call, is called Physolimus NSFE. It's, named for the, it's literally named for the National Science Foundation. So this is the, this is the basic advertisement call of these kinds of frogs. These frogs have evolved, and I'm not going to talk about the morphology, but we know at the morphological basis what had to evolve. They evolved another structure in their throat that allows them to add these syllables to the call. These syllables are called chucks. The wine is necessary and sufficient to attract a female. 
but the males compete with one another. So what I show here is at the very top, when males begin to call, they always begin to call with a simple whine. And then what, the, what this mess of uh, lines shows, the transition probabilities between the different call states. And what usually happens is they increase, their call, increase or decrease their call complexity one step at a time. They go from a whine to a whine with one chuck. And then if they increase complexity to two chucks, and if they complex, increase complexity to three chucks, and they can produce up to seven chucks. But 98% of all the calls that we count in nature uh, have three chucks or fewer. And the males increase their vocalizations in response to the vocalizations of other males, usually. So what happens is if you go to a, a pond and there's only one male calling, he produces only a whine. If you go to a chorus and there's lots of males calling, then they produce calls with chucks. And I just want to play these calls for you just to give you an idea of, um, of what they sound like. And as I said, they can play up to, they can produce up to seven chucks. So one obvious question that we asked is, why do males make complex calls? And the way that we answer this question is by asking the frog. So what we do is we collect females in amplexus with the male hugging them, but before they started to mate. And then we bring them into this acoustic chamber. This is all done at, at facilities of Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, or STRI, in Panama. And we can place a female in the middle of one of these chambers. We can then sh uh, close up the chamber, watch them through an infrared camera. And then we present animals different stimuli. And we can make synthetic frog calls. We can de deconstruct the frog calls to the basic salient features that are necessary for the female. We can deconstruct the frog calls to test hypotheses about the neural basis of signal, uh, signal recognition. We can also enhance the frog calls to test hypotheses about the possible evolvability of, um, of calls under sexual selection. But the first question we asked is, do females prefer complex calls over simple calls? And the answer is yes. 85% of, in 85% of the tests, females are more likely to respond to a call with one chuck than a call with no chucks. And actually, our, this is an older slide. Our sample size is about up to 5,000 now. And over 20 years, there's very little variation in the strength of female preference for complex calls versus simple calls. So this is, why, this is why males make complex calls, because these calls are preferred by females. If they make complex calls, if they can make complex calls and the females prefer complex calls, and the males are under selection to mate, to pass on their genes to the next generation, then why don't they always make complex calls? And this is part of the answer. You have, the way to answer this is you have to ask who else is listening to the frogs as they call. And here's someone who's listening. I would much rather hear that sound of pity than cheering for the bats, is what I often hear. <laughs> so this bat is Trachopsirosis. It's uh, known as the frog-eating bat. Merlin Tuttle and I, a number of years ago, discovered not the bat, but discovered, first of all, that the bat ate frogs, which is a bit unusual for a New World bat. 
But what was especially interesting is the way the bats found the frogs. They found the frogs by listening to them. And as you all know, bats are specialized to use ultrasonic sounds, sounds higher than we can hear, to acoustically image their environment, including their prey. Most bats can't hear very well the kinds of frequencies that we hear. These bats have adaptations in the inner ear. They have extra neural innervations inside the cochlea. And that extra set of neural innervations is at the end of the basal membrane, which codes frequency. It's at the end of the uh, basal membrane where the frogs are decoding lower frequency sounds. So these bats evolved inner ear specializations, as far as we could tell, to allow them to forage for frogs. Now, the bats are attracted to the frog calls, but what's, interest, uh, what's especially interesting is that they have the same preferences that female <coughs> frogs do. So we can do experiments with these bats in two ways. We can go into the jungle on BCI, and we can play calls where we know these bats reside. And the bats will come out of the canopy, and they'll dive bomb the speakers. Or we can bring them in a flight cage about the size of this room, and the bats will eventually land on the speakers, ripping the top of the speaker, trying to get to the frog inside. If we play the bats only a whine, the bats do what the females do. They're attracted to the whine. If we give the bats a choice between a whine and a chuck versus a whine, the bats show about the same strength of preference for the complex call to the simple call. So when the males, so the females are under selection by females to make more complex calls, but they're under counter selection by bats to make less complex calls. And these bats eat lots of frogs. At one site in, on Barrow, Colorado Island, they ate on the average of uh, between six and seven frogs per hour per night. So they're, they're eating a huge number of these frogs. That's probably, I mean, we pick places to study this where there are lots of bats. So that's certainly not an average level of predation, but it's a real level of predation. And as if that weren't bad enough, the bats and the females aren't the only ones that's listening. So I want you to watch these guys calling and look for fly, look for mosquitoes. He's calling, she, he's not. Hope we can see it. The other, do you see the flies starting to gather around this guy? but not this guy. Now they'll stop. And now, all, now those flies are going to leave. Okay. If we now, what are they doing? So if we look at this video, what we're going to see is that these flies, they come to the males. They land on the back of the males. They walk around the males. And then they eventually walk up to the front. And they walk inside the male's nares. And I didn't put the slide in to show you, but then they take a blood meal. They suck blood out of the capillaries from inside the nose. But see them walking around? Now look at the guy on the right. He's going to go inside the nares. And he, not he, she, is searching for a capillary that she can puncture. This is a picture of a, not a physolemus, but a toad uh, from, from one of my friends in, in Havana. And this is, the same, this is the same animal attracted to this toad. What are these animals? For years, we thought they were mosquitoes. They're not mosquitoes. They're in the sister clade to mosquitoes. They're these flies called Corothrella. But they're very much like mosquitoes. Females take blood meals. So they land on, they land on calling frogs. We didn't, we didn't show that, they, that they're attracted to frog calls. That had actually been known before. But with the tungra frogs, you can put speakers into the field by an insect trap that sucks in the flies as they come to the speaker, and you can count them. And you can have one 
play only simple calls, and another speaker, just play white noise, and you get many more flies going to the Tungo frog call. Then you can give the fly, you can play a call with zero chucks and a call with one chucks, and like the female frogs and like the frog-eating bats, more flies go to, the, uh, go to the speaker with more chucks. So what we're seeing now is that there's that there's lot that these are attractive signals are attractive to the females regardless of what any aesthetic acoustic preferences that we have the females find them more attractive and what we find throughout the animal kingdom as darwin noted that these elaborate traits that are preferred by females quite often come at a very severe survivorship cost to the male and that has been shown not only by this study but it's been shown by legions of study legions of other studies so one question that we wanted to ask was at the proximate level, at the mechanistic level, why do, these, why do the chucks sound so good to females? Why do they prefer calls with chucks to calls without chucks? Now this question can be asked at two levels. One could be why in their heads do they find these calls more attractive? Then another question is why did females evolve this preference to prefer chucks? So in biology, that's, we usually refer to these as proximate and ultimate explanations. And, what I'm, and I've made the argument a number of times, and continue to make it, that dividing biology into proximate and ultimate approaches is not always fruitful. And sometimes the proximate answer is the ultimate answer, and sometimes the ultimate answer is the proximate answer. But for sure, if we only ask one question, we have a really large risk of getting it wrong. So what I want to talk about now is at the proximate level. Why do these chucks sound so good to females? Well, to answer that question, we need to know how females perceive sound. You know, this, how's the sound getting in their head, and what are they doing with it once they get it? So this is the frog's ear. They have a tympanic membrane, an eardrum like we do. It's just that they don't have these pinna, their eardrums out on the side. They don't have a middle ear bone. They have a columella. The, the, the eardrum's connect, connected to the columella. When the eardrum moves in response to sound, the columella moves. It's attached to a window on the inner ear, and it sloshes all this fluid around. We have one, one ear on each side of our heads, a cochlea. They have two. They have this thing, AP, the amphibian papilla. Then above that, they have this other thing, basal papilla. These things are distinct from one another functionally, and they're distinct from each other embryonically. They don't, they don't develop together. But they're both sensitive to airborne sound. They're both innervated by the eighth cranial nerve. They send nerves into this giant nerve fiber, which then goes into the hindbrain of the frog. And that's how sound gets into the frog's head. Now, when we listen to sound, we can hear a broad frequency range of sound. Our ears let in a lot of sound, and then we let our brains do all the work. This isn't true with frogs. Frogs have distinct tuning of their ears. The amphibian papilla hears lower frequency sounds. The BP hears higher frequency sounds. But both of these, sound, both of these inner ear organs hear some sounds better than other sounds. This led Copranica many years ago to suggest that the frog's auditory system, the peripheral auditory system, the ears, had matched filters. These filters were matched to the frequencies that characterize the frog's call. If you plot on this axis the sensitivity of the frog's ear versus this axis, the frequencies that are dominant in the frog's mating call, you see that there's a very strong correlation. 
Knowing, knowing the frequency of the mating call explains 82% of the variation in the tuning of the inner ear or vice versa. So if one, for a frog, if one wants to know what is the tuning of these auditory nerves, and if you don't want to do electrophysiology, then you can just tape record the frog and analyze its call, and you're going to be pretty close. Okay, let's look at the Tungra frog. The this is the wine of the Tungra frog. Most of its energy is low frequency. The dominant frequency is about 700 hertz. The chuck has mostly higher energy. The dominant, this is the wine slashing through the chuck. The dominant frequency of the chuck without the wine is about 2,000 hertz. I'm not going to go over these in detail, but this is the tuning curve. We put electrodes in the nerves as they go from the ear to the brain. This is the tuning curve of the amphibian papilla. I'm sorry, this is the tuning curve of the amphibian papilla. It's most sensitive to 700 hertz. It matches the wine. This is the, the tuning of the ear. The basal papilla, it's tuned to 2200 hertz. It pretty much matches the tuning of the chuck. So there are these match filters between the energy that's in the wine, the energy that's in the chuck, and how the ear is tuned. So the females like these chucks because these are stimulating an inner ear organ that's not being stimulated unless the male's making a chuck. Now we can take this neurophysiological data and we can ask, to what degree does the neurophysiological data really predict what the females like? So now we can take a synthetic mating call and we can take it apart, piece by piece by piece by piece. And this took about five years, about 1,500 mate choice studies to do. And what we see is that all males have to do is make this little part of a wine and this part of the chuck. They need to make the part of the wine that stimulates one inner ear organ, part of the chuck that stimulates this inner ear organ. We can even make a single tone here. Doesn't matter, and the females like it. So the female's brain is biased to these complex signals. The brain is excited more. More of the auditory system is stimulated when males make more complex calls. OK, males make complex calls. Females like complex calls. It would look like they evolved together. And this process is called coevolution. This would be a phylogeny representing how the, uh, the relationships of, this of one animal to other close related animals. So what we see here is large T indicates the evolution of an elaborate trait compared to small T, which would be a simpler trait. What we would see is that here we have an elaborate trait. Large P indicates you have a preference for an elaborate trait. Since these two these two characteristics, a complex call and the preference for a complex call, are in this taxa, but not in these other taxa. That would suggest that there are two independent evolutionary events right here. This, they evolve complex calls, and they evolve prefer preferences and brain biases for complex calls. Well, that would be true if these guys did not have a preference for a complex call. Well, why would they have a preference for a complex call if they don't have a complex call? Well. Maybe if they had the brain biases for a complex call. The point is that another alternative is that, sure, these guys have preference for complex calls and neural tuning that gives you these preferences. But maybe that also exists here. If it were to exist in the taxa that did not evolve the complex call, then a likely hypothesis would be that the trait, the complex call, evolved here. But when it evolved, there was already what we refer to as a sensory bias that was, that was latent in the females and ready to act on the evolution of this complex call. So we've looked at this in two ways. This is the Tungra frog. This tree shows how it's related to the other species. 
The Tungra frog and its sister taxa have complex calls. Nobody else has complex calls. In these seven or eight species, there's another 30 species in the genus. At least when we've worked with them in the field, we've never recorded another complex call. So the complex call in the history of these frogs evolved right before these two species split off. And this was about 15 million years ago. I'm sorry, this was 7 million years ago. This break was 15 million years ago. And these guys are on different side of the Andes. And this, what, what our clocks say, was about 30 million years ago. This is the tuning of the basal papilla. These guys, using sloppy language, but these guys like chucks because the chucks stimulate this inner ear organ that's tuned to here. Did this tuning evolve? As the males evolve chucks, no. They all have the same tuning, except for this frog, which for some reason is a little higher, which we don't know why. But when we do the neurophysiology on all these close related species, they're the same. So what that says to us is that the neural bias that gives rise to preference for chuck is an ancestral trait in this group of animals. So you need this tuning, it appears, to give a preference for chuck, but this tuning had existed for tens of millions of years before the chuck evolved. Also, in only one species, we've been able to do this. We tested this species to see if they would, these females would prefer chucks if we added chucks to their call, and the answer is yes, they would prefer chucks. So what we see then is, we see this preference in nature. Females prefer complex calls. We delve into the brain, and we're going to delve into the brain a little bit deeper, and we can ask, why do they prefer complex calls? And it's due to the tuning of the inner ear. And then we can ask, what was the evolutionary relationship between the complex call and the preference for the complex call? And then we have, this is a question about evolutionary history, so we have to understand something about the phylogenetics or the evolutionary relationships of closer species. And, and what we've been emphasizing through these kinds of studies is the importance of integrating brain behavior and evolution to have a deep understanding of why animals do what they do. They're not the only ones, though, that have this pattern of what we call sensory exploitation. There's a number of other ones, but the, most, the, the best known one are studies of swordtails and platyfish. These animals are in the same genus, Xiphophorus. These are platyfish. Those are swordtails. Swordtails, in general, have swords, and platyfish, in general, don't have swords. Studies that were um, done by Alex Basolo beginning in 1990 and going to now have shown that females have latent preferences for swords. This is swordtail. These are platyfish. And all of these others are live-bearing fishes, none of which have swords. So what Basolo first does is shows that in this species of swordtail, Females prefer normal males with swords to males whose swords you cut off. Then what she showed is if you go to the platyfish and you paste a sword onto their males and give the female a choice, and she's had no experience with sorted males before, not sorted, swarded males before, <laughs> that the females prefer the males with these artificial swords to the normal males. And that's true for this platyfish, and it's true for a number of these other animals in the same family, although there's other animals that don't seem to have this latent preference. So again, so again, what we see here is that the preference for sword evolved prior to the evolution of the sword. But what this also suggests is why should female tungra frogs have preferences for chucks before chucks even exist? Why should female platyfish have a preference for sword before swords even existed? And the answer is that these preferences for chucks 
and for swords are not that specific. James Gould at Princeton did an experiment with sword tails where he pasted a sword to the front of the male of a platyfish, and it was equally attractive. We have a lot more degree, experimental degrees of freedom in the frogs. And what we can ask is, how, what, kinds of, what kinds of acoustic signals might evolve under female preference? John Endler had a paper a few years ago where he talked about two different kinds of evolution of sexually selected traits. There can be simple elaboration where traits get larger, louder, more complex, or brighter. Or there can be innovations, like when animals just evolve unique morphological characteristics that are attractive to females. And we've been able to do both of these, and I won't go through all the details, but there's about 40 different acoustic stimuli here that we add to a wine. And in about 90 to 95% of these cases, the call becomes more attractive. If we add noise, if we add calls of other species, as long as we're hitting the tuning in that basilar papilla. And I forget which one is the bell and whistle, but as we're doing these experiments, we said, any bell and whistle just make these calls more attractive. So, oh, we didn't try that. So we took a wine ear, and then we added to it, on top of one another, a bell and a whistle, and the females found that more attractive to a wine with a chuck. So the point is that what we see here are very general female preferences for latent female preferences for trait elaboration and trait innovation. And probably the constraining feature uh, in this system on what causes, what, what modulates or mediates the evolution of elaborate traits, it's probably not the female preference. The female preference appears to be fairly open-ended as long as they're producing a wine. It's probably the male morphology. And we know, uh, we know how the male morphology works. We know a little bit about the ontogeny of development of the male morphology, the larynx, the male sexual morphology. And now we're looking at gene expression in the development of the sexual morphology. So we think we're going to have a very good understanding of both the morphological and the underlying genetic constraints that cause males to evolve chucks, not, evolve, not to evolve other, other kinds of sounds. And so as I point out, Basolo did these experiments with sword tails. We've shown you can add a variety of acoustic traits to wines and auklets. One species of auklet has these facial ornaments. If you put those facial ornaments on other auklets that don't have them, it makes those males more attractive. There's some uh, jumping spiders with hairy arms. Most of them don't have hairy arms. If you put hair on their arms, it makes them more attractive. And there's numerous other examples of these kinds of sensory biases. But I want to end by just asking one question about the brain. And this is the only, this is the only tie that I want to make, try to make between aesthetic preferences in tungra frogs and in humans. So, we looked at the peripheral auditory system, and in frogs, unlike some other, unlike mammals and birds, the peripheral auditory system is decoding a lot of information. What we can also do, though, is we can ask, how does the brain respond, the entire brain, not just the auditory system, how does the brain respond to signal variation? So there's these class of genes that are called immediate early genes. It's not quite known what these genes what the function of these genes are. But what we do know is that when there's an action potential in a neuron, there's expression of immediate early genes. So what one can do is one can stimulate the brain. The maximum gene expression occurs in 30 minutes. You then sacrifice the animal, any kind of animal. This has been done with birds, with mammals, with frogs, with fishes. You sacrifice the brain. 
You then slice the brain and you do in situ hybridizations to identify the messenger RNA from the gene expression that took place when the brain was being stimulated. So the main point is you stimulate an animal, you sacrifice the animal, you slice its brain, and now you have a record through the entire brain of what parts of the brain were, act, were more active when they heard a call of their own species, the complex call of their own species, the call of a different species, or when they heard no sound at all. Then by comparing the amount of gene activation, one can determine how activity in the brain changes as a function of um, the acoustic stimulation. So one thing that we've shown is in their main auditory nucleus, in their midbrain, there's much more immediate early gene expression, therefore much more neural excitation if they hear complex calls versus simple calls, if they hear calls of their own species versus another species. But we're not only interested in the auditory system, we're interested in decision making, and we're interested in how these, de these decisions are then fed forward to the frontal part of the brain where they actually generate the behavior. That is the motor pattern of phonotaxis. And I, I don't want to go through all this, but we have a very good idea now of how the entire decision-making decision -making network is, re, is wired. We know where the sound comes in. We know the biases when they listen to the sound. Within, within vertebrate brains, there's come something called a social neural network. We know how the social neural network is best stimulated by the conspecific call rather than other calls. But one interesting thing we found is that in vertebrate brains, there's something called the dopamine reward system. In humans, our reward system is turned on by sex, by drugs, and sometimes by rock and roll. <laughs> in lots of animals, these lots of animals, this reward system is very important in their in their mating system. We know that this is true in voles. We know it's true in fishes. There's many many examples of this. We also know that in humans, if we look here. When people are shown photographs, now these are photographs, but when they're shown photographs either of loved ones or of what are considered to be attractive members of the opposite sex, then VTA, the ventral tegmental area, which is an important part of the dopamine reward system that fMRI sh studies show enhanced excitation of the ventral tegmental area when they're looking at, at pictures of either loved ones or member members of the opposite sex, and I shouldn't say loved ones, of people with whom they are in love. So this, this would be um, romantic love. In the Tungra frog, I don't show exactly where the VTA is here, we find exactly the same thing. When they hear complex calls or simple calls, what we see is that there's overexpression of these genes in the dopamine reward system and in the area in the frog that's thought to be the mammalian homologue of the um, the ventral tegmental area. So what this, is, what this says to us, and this certainly isn't our idea, the dopamine reward system is a very conserved network of brain nuclei invertebrates. For any pleasurable activity, it seems, in humans, neurons and brain nuclei in the dopamine reward system are turned on. 
So what we're, what we're thinking, what other people have suggested, is that any kind of behavior that would be favored by selection, the stimuli associated with that behavior are probably, perhaps, recruited into this dopamine reward system. And this offers a proximate positive reinforcement for engaging in this kind of behavior. At the proximate level, we might engage and be in sexual behavior because it feels good. At the ultimate level, mammals or male mammals are under selection to mate as often as they can because they reproduce more. So this might be, so if I were interested in trying to tie human aesthetic preferences to animal aesthetic preferences, I think where I would look would be at the conserved neural networks amongst animals, and I would be specifically interested in this dopamine reward system. And I would ask how these very different, but in quotes, pleasurable behaviors are recruiting the same reward system in very, very different kinds of animals. So with that, thank you very much for your attention. If selection were acting for the survival of the species, then one would predict that females would not prefer males that are making these calls that are maladaptive under, under uh, natural selection, that don't decrease their survivorship. So for, for the good of the species, what one would expect is that females would prefer the males that are doing the less risky calls, investing the less energy in calls, and therefore enhancing their survivorship. And that's, and that's certainly not what we see. I think what we see is selection acting very strongly at the individual level and pro promoting those behaviors which, on average, are going to increase the reproductive success of the male. Why are the females, besides the, the uh, neural biases, is there any advantage of the females to preferring these calls with chucks? And yes, there are. What happens is that the females are more attracted to larger males because they have deeper voices, and larger males fertilize more eggs. If the females don't get information from the chucks, then the females don't have the information to evaluate male size. It's, it, even though we haven't been able to demonstrate it yet, we also think that the females can find males that are making calls with chucks easier than calls with not chucks. But, and that should be true from what we know about hearing. But all our attempts to demonstrate this experimentally you know, has failed. Frogs have a hard time localizing sound. So that's, so that's why we think you get this sexual conflict with males engaging in behaviors that decrease their survivorship, but the females preferring those males because they're getting information that does enhance their reproductive success. Did you say that the, uh, the flies, the mosquito-like flies, and <coughs> bats also responded preferentially to more complex subtle lines? Yeah. So what's the explanation you suppose for that? Because, yeah. of course, that's not going to be because uh, it's not gonna be the same sensory bias as no. on the female frogs. Is it because the females are going to be there too? No, that's a positive. No, but that's a very good suggestion. And there are um, there are geckos that hang out by calling male crickets, but they don't eat the male. They wait for the females to come. They eat the female, then they wait for another female to come. They eat the female. No, what what we've shown for sure, what we've shown for sure in the bats, is that the bats can localize calls with chucks much better 
then they can localize calls without chucks. So you put out a speaker and you just measure how accurately does the bat get there. If you make the task realistic, so they're in a flight cage, but they have to fly through an obstacle course, similar to what they might have to do in the forest, then they can localize calls with chucks much better. The flies, we don't know. The flies shouldn't be able to hear these sounds. The literature says that they have the same hearing that mosquitoes do. But they don't, because mosquitoes can never hear this. So there's a neurobiologist at Cornell, Ron Hoy, He's, we've given him some flies, and he said that these flies have evolved a unique ear for insects that seems to be an adaptation for hearing these kinds of low-frequency sounds. But what we do with the flies, we take a target, and we put, there's something called uh, stickum, for stickum traps, so when insects land on it, they can't get out, and we put a speaker at the middle of the bullseye and play either a wine or a wine chuck, and then we see where the flies are stuck and how close they are to the bullseye. And they don't, do, they don't get any closer to a wine chuck than to a wine. So we don't know why this is true with the flies. And we don't know enough about the flies hearing yet. Steve? Mike, uh, humans find many different things are beautiful. I am attracted to many different kinds of women. <laughs> and I would like to know how. I fear you're not unique, sir. <laughs> I would like to know how these ideas explain that variation. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, we can ask the same thing of the Tungra frogs. In the experiment, in nature, you show us that you're more attracted to complex calls. But what about if we ask you if you would be attracted to another kind of male. And that's what we did. Acoustically, we gave them another 40 different kinds of males. And, what, and we know, because we know their brain, we know the rules. We could make lots of stimuli that we know the females would not find more attractive than a simple wine. So we have a head start, because we know the rule. We know how their brain works. Given what we know about the auditory system, we found another 40 stimuli that the females like just as much as a complex call. And they sound really, really different. The rules are, We've got to be getting the sound into certain parts of the auditory system. None of those 40 stimuli that are more attractive than a simple call, they're all, they're all more attractive than a simple call. None of them are more attractive than a wine with a chuck. They're equally as attractive to wine with a chuck. So the males, we, don't know, we know enough about the morphology that we think a wine with a chuck was the easiest morphological pathway for the males to go down when they're evolving more complex calls. And um, I think we have a, I mean, we can pretty much demonstrate that. But they could have, if there's enough flexibility in their larynx, they could have evolved many, many other signals. So with your attraction to members of the opposite sex, there's a lot of variety, but I'm not sure. My guess is that it wouldn't be just any organism that you'd be attracted to. But does the demonstration that there is a plausible biological mechanism that can explain mate choice rule out in an organism that has culture that in fact the dominant explanation in humans might actually be culture rather than the sort of bias. It absolutely does not rule that out. Absolutely. And I and I would certainly not argue that in human aesthetic preferences that culture isn't the absolute primary explanation for most of our aesthetic preference. What I would argue, which would be at a very trivial level, but at least I know it would be at a level that's, bio, that's true, is we were talking about this in class before this, appreciation for paintings. We know what kinds of colors won't be used in a painting, very trivially. We know that ultraviolet and infrared wavelengths are not going to be used because we can't see them. 
We also know because of the way our opponency system works, because of the comparison of photopigment cells, we also can make a guess as to which combination of colors might work. We know in terms of music, when you this is hard because kids can hear sound in utero. But when, as, soon as, as soon as a baby is born, within three days, they, can do, they do an experiment where you play that baby consonant music, harmon sounds, harmonic sounds. What happens is the children become very restful, and they look to the speaker. You play them the same kinds of sounds, but the, the tones are not harmonically related. They're dissonant. The babies become very upset and turn away. Now, that could be cultural because of the kinds of sounds and even the, the relationships of the formats from the woman when she's talking. That's one possibility. Helmholtz suggests in the 1800s that the way that our basilar membrane decodes frequency would predict that we should find harmonically related sounds more, more pleasing than unharmonically related sounds. If I, if I were pressed, and as you pointed out, I'm merely a frog biologist, but if I were pressed to, to think about what are the biological basis for aesthetic preferences in humans, what I would do, I would start at the most fundamental level of how we perceive stimuli, like silly things. We're not going to be attracted to colors we can't see. We're going to be attracted to some combinations of colors more likely than others. Then I would slowly build up to that. Would that prove that we prefer pictures of landscape because of our Pleistocene ancestors? No. And this is what we're talking about in class. It's not a random example. So to, at what level do you want to explain aesthetic preferences? I think there's, a, there's an important role for biology. But I think as of now, the only thing biologically that's testable has to do with the way in which we perceive and organize stimuli. And that's way, way off from the kinds of aesthetic preferences that many evolutionary psychologists are talking about. Well, let's thank uh, Mike. Thank you. This lecture was presented as part of the Distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities, established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. The 2011 Shulman Lectures were organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, Evolution of Beauty, a wide-ranging philosophical and scientific inquiry into the evolution and roles of beauty in the human and natural worlds. The course was co-taught by Jonathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Philosophy, and Richard Prum, William Robertson Co. Professor of Ornithology, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology.